Welcome to the Better Buildings podcast, Canada's conversation about opportunities for improvement in the built environment. Better Buildings is presented by Canadian Consulting Engineer. I'm the editor, Peter Saunders, and I'm here today with Andre Ifrig of Dialogue Design in Calgary to discuss resilient buildings. It's good to have you here with us today. So from your perspective, how would you define a resilient building? At Dialogue, we're currently designing a resilient library. We had an exchange about this with the design team last week, and we came up with the following definition, just in time for this interview, Peter. A resilient building maintains operational continuity. It never goes down. That means no matter what happens, it still has access to water and power. One of the things I think the pandemic has also taught us is that internet connectivity is vital. We can't do without that, so let's add it to the list of attributes. A resilient public building today is likely multi-purpose, meeting the project program and providing shelter if a major climate event occurs, and we're seeing this being written into proposals. Because water seems to be a common denominator in many climate change events, so think of life-threatening storms, sea level rise, river flooding, a resilient building can get its feet wet and still function. I think about it this way, resilient buildings mediate between their location and extreme weather. Where vulnerable populations are involved, resilient building becomes even more important. Think of hospitals or social housing. Rich people can afford to pay for air conditioning as the planet gets hotter. Poor people can't. And of course, hospital patients have no say. With the climate heating up, we don't want to broil people in their own buildings. A resilient building in these circumstances is so well insulated and designed that it stays comfortable even as the temperature increases. The final thing I would add here is that sometimes the best resilient building is the one you don't build because you need to retreat rather than build or repair in that particular location. It's interesting, yeah. The only other example I kind of heard was sort of the opposite. Here in Toronto, they're building our city's largest uh, daycare center, and it's going to be um, a resilient building, uh, mainly for the winter time. The reasoning being that that uh, building envelope will ensure that if the power goes out, you know, all the kids are in there, they're going to be safe and warm uh, throughout the day um, for as long as needed until they can get picked up. So I could see the same. Uh, sort of attributes of the building being both beneficial for rising and lower temperatures uh, in emergency situations. Absolutely. Now, do any current guidelines and codes in Canada align well with those goals of a resilient building? I'd have to say our codes have been slow to catch up and municipal guidelines are mostly still at the wishful thinking stage. There's some exceptions, but many cities are not ready yet. The National Research Council, the NRC, is responsible for Canada's building codes, and it readily acknowledges this deficit. The NRC is spending $42.5 million of federal money on research to inform a new model code for release in 2025, and it's going to factor in climate change and building resiliently. Among other things, it's going to update the building requirements for wind resistance, how buildings bear snow loads, there are going to be new standards for windows, exterior insulation, fire tests, air barriers, and asphalt shingles. And in 2025, this new model energy building code will be based on studies of climate stresses and their effects in different parts of Canada. 
there will also be new guidelines for structures to better resist higher flood levels or to keep buildings cool during heat waves. There are some measures that are in place or being put in place to bridge the gap between now and that model code in 2025. And I think the most significant one is the 2019 Canadian Highway Bridge Design Guide, the CHBDC. It's been revised to include a full update of its historic data. This is a major improvement over outdated icing, temperature and humidity design data, some of which was last updated in the 1970s. So this is the problem with our codes when they're out of date. The 2019 CHBDC marks the first time that general provisions for climate resilience and sustainability have been implemented in a Canadian code. And there are a number of other measures that are coming into place. I think the harsh reality, however, is that right now it's perfectly legal to build strictly to the existing code, which is like building for yesterday's weather. We have a new climate and it requires new strategies for resilient building. And you can't build resiliently unless you're well informed about this new climate and you use climate change projections instead of historic climate data. Now, aside from existing or even new codes, what about targets that uh, some companies pursue like passive house certification? So passive house certification, of course, is getting a lot more attention in Canada right now than it did previously. And it aligns really well with addressing global heating. But I think it's important to remember that it doesn't necessarily deal with site-specific vulnerabilities, such as flooding or fire. So when we think about climate change impacts, climate change is a risk multiplier. And some of the risks include wildfire, for instance, and flooding from all kinds of sources. So it can certainly mitigate some climate variables because it has a high performance enclosure, mitigates heat and cold, as you mentioned earlier. With temperatures rising uncomfortably in some Canadian cities, building a better envelope becomes imperative. In Toronto, by 2050, projections show there will be more than 40 days per year over 30 degrees Celsius. And in fact, one projection I looked at published by the City of Toronto shows more than 60 days per year of very hot weather. So a, a passive house envelope will help, but in inner cities, you need more than just a better envelope on individual buildings to address heat waves and heat island effect. Planners, architects, engineers, they all need to collaborate to address the many facets of climate change impacts. We need to design cities differently and rethink vast areas of concrete and pavement which trap heat and water. Now, how can we build better for flooding? You mentioned some uh, examples for for heat, obviously, with the building envelope, but in terms of uh, avoiding the uh, the impacts of flooding, what can be done? Uh, there are a number of different ways to address it. it. It depends on the source of the flooding. Is it sea level rise or high tides, which is what we're facing on both coasts, I guess three coasts in Canada? Is it because stormwater systems can't manage these increasingly severe rainfall events that we have? Is it because there's a rapid melt and the rivers flood. So different kinds of flooding may require different measures. A key one is, A, we don't build in the places where we should retreat. 
and the, apparently it's very hard for municipalities and regions to agree to do that, but that would be one way to deal with it. Um, so I always advise design teams to do their due diligence in identifying potential climate change impacts early in design, and they need to check published guidelines or standards. One response to chronic flooding from high tides or river flooding uh, might be to build a building that can get its feet wet. Does that mean it's on stilts? Not necessarily, but it means there's probably no basement and the building is uh, on a plinth or, or uh, something like that on a, a raised or elevated surface. Uh, or you build a basement, but it's not occupied or used for living. It's really more about the foundation for the building. It's curious, I was doing some research on this. U Waterloo is studying the idea of amphibious or buoyant foundations for existing homes as a way of dealing with flood events. Clearly major infrastructure measures are going to be required, for instance, new stormwater systems or barriers and such as dams upstream to limit river flooding. Now tell me about the um, Public Infrastructure Engineering Vulnerability Committee, uh, PIVC, and its role in guiding the construction of resilient buildings. I am really impressed by the work Engineers Canada has done to prepare professionals in this country for the vicissitudes of climate change. In the wake of the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change's work and evidence of a changing climate, the committee commenced working on a protocol in 2005 for addressing design for public infrastructure. Committee members recognized that existing infrastructure was not designed to withstand the stresses associated with the climate emergency. The PIVC protocol offers a methodology for assessing climate risks to civil infrastructure, how to maintain and adapt existing infrastructure, and how to build new. PIVC provides training for engineers to deliver on the protocol through its Infrastructure Resilience Professional or IRP credential, and that's only open to engineers, incidentally. Since March 2020, the protocol has been administered by the Institute for Catastrophic Loss Reduction in Canada, and training is now delivered by the Climate Risk Institute. Providing training is one thing. I really admire the work PIVC is doing. Getting every engineer to change conventional practice is another. The federal government is increasing the adoption of new planning practices through climate lens assessments, which are a necessity for any building or civil project that receives funding through Infrastructure Canada. The PIVC, along with Envision certification, are two of the tools that fulfill climate lens assessment criteria. And do you see that as uh, an opportunity to kind of lead the way where such a, as the same measures could be taken for the private sector? Yes. And so one of the interesting things about this Infrastructure Canada funding is it has gone out in the last three or four years as part of the, the pan-Canadian framework to reduce climate change impacts in Canada. It's, it's been awarded to all kinds of projects. So for instance, in Calgary, I can tell you that the new BMO Centre, a great deal of its funding came from Infrastructure Canada. I worked on a recreational centre in Calgary and it had to do a climate lens assessment. So we're seeing this being used depending upon who gets the funding for all kinds of building uses. And what role do you see our audience of consulting engineers uh, playing in planning for resilience? I think engineers are the new climate heroes. From conducting climate change vulnerability assessments to building climate-worthy horizontal infrastructure to measures to mitigate climate impacts on buildings. Engineers are going to be the ones showing clients and design teams how to design for climate adaptation. 
and we will constantly be adapting horizontal and vertical infrastructure over this century. It's inevitable with climate change. The best way for engineers to play their role is to integrate into design teams and collaborate with planners as early as possible in design. Resilient design is founded on integrated teams. You've mentioned a couple of examples. What other big changes do you think are needed for new buildings? I think it starts with a decision in the earliest stages of design to conduct a vulnerability assessment and determine what risks the building will face. If you skip that step, then you don't have adequate data for design. It means ceasing to use historic climate data and instead using projections for the next 30 years at a minimum. There are excellent climate resources available in Canada, such as climatedata.ca and climateatlas.ca that provide the data engineers need. When engineers use historic climate data for an energy model or to assess wind risk as two examples, they are literally designing for a climate that no longer exists. We live in a new climate and we need to design for it. So that would be the biggest item on my list. I go on to say that many buildings in Canada are still built strictly to code. And if we're honest about it, some only meet the catnap principle, cheapest available technology, narrowly avoiding prosecution. Any building that only meets code is a sitting duck as the climate emergency worsens over the next few decades. Engineers owe it to clients to inform them of the risks and arrive with building owners at a decision on whether the risks will be tolerated or mitigated. I developed a simple four-step climate change risk management framework for use by engineers and architects so that even if no vulnerability assessment is conducted, clients are still knowledgeable about what to expect. They may not have been willing previously to build sustainably, and trust me, I've been in the trenches a long time, and many clients are still not willing to build sustainably. But the fact is a building with a high performance envelope is going to weather climate change much better and less expensively than one built to code. The biggest change I'd like to see is engineers and architects being more successful in convincing laggard clients to build better. As for some specific measures, many of these are being introduced in the next four years by the NRC and Canadian codes. Those include design for heavier snow loads and storms that bring more precipitation and higher wind velocities, design for flooding, and design of mechanical systems and building enclosures to address heat waves. Now, even if we were able to see all those changes put into place for a brand new building, obviously most of the uh, projects are existing building stock that needs to be retrofitted. Uh, What possibilities do you see there? Several. Occupants of resilient buildings have a place to shelter when the power goes off or water supply is interrupted, and our existing buildings do not have either of those uh, items in place. That means beefing up insulation in the building envelope and reducing thermal bridging through good detailing. Upgrading windows to triple pane units. So as a a building goes through its life cycle, you keep improving those items. Alternative energy systems. So the building isn't always reliant on the grid for electricity. A mixed ventilation system, mechanical and natural to provide options if the grid goes down during extreme heat. And alternative water sources other than municipally supplied potable water. If you live in an area with a high wildfire risk, and many Canadian communities do, now is the time to replace aging vinyl siding with a material more resistant to fire. The best place to start doesn't require a deep knowledge of climate change, just good building practice. Improving building enclosures, 
so that they resist wind-driven precipitation, heavy snow loads, and rising heat. Those are obvious measures. Another is dealing with flooding, not least basement flooding and sewer backups. The installation of sewer backwater valves and maintenance of sump pumps are two measures that reduce the risk of basement flooding after a severe storm. Yeah, I'd love to hear some examples of how you at Dialogue have worked in this area, you know, made existing buildings more resilient or designed new ones to be. Mostly we're working on new buildings and I have three examples for you. One of these is not a building per se. It's that reminder we need to start with the big picture. The new Tecumseh Master Plan, this is in Simcoe County in Ontario, is a great example of how adding trees to a streetscape can transform it to be much more resilient to future heat events, as well as stormwater issues. To put this another way, you start with the site rather than focusing exclusively on four walls and a roof. Dialogue recently worked on a competition for a new art gallery in Halifax. The gallery is exposed to high tides and sea level rise. The site is shaped, organized, and activated by water. Rather than resisting the water, the team designed a building with a raised gallery, leaving ground level to adapt to shifting water levels and providing space for outdoor programming. The third example is Dialogue's prototype timber high-rise that includes green walls for both shading and protection from wind and storm debris. This is a net zero building, another really important measure for resilient design. What do you see being the benefits of using timber in construction in that respect? We know that timber stores carbon and has a much smaller embodied footprint. So that's our primary goal at the moment in using timber. Um, In this case, in this building, through clever engineering, and there was more than one engineering firm that helped us out with the design of the prototype, uh, we were able to demonstrate that you can build a high rise in timber and it will resist the wind loads and the weather that's going to come at it in this new climate that we have. You mentioned that you have um, business colleagues in in Edmonton and I can't think of any other big city in Canada that would have to deal with more extremes of temperature both high and low. Uh, You know what what is kind of top of mind for them right now when they're uh, when they're working on these projects there? I think both in Edmonton and Calgary what we get is a 70 degree Celsius difference between winter and summer. So that, that's just what you live with if you're on the prairies. And in Edmonton, um, they obviously have a very harsh winter uh, and they have to design for that. In the city, one of their issues is that there's there are some areas where stormwater systems are outdated. And so if you're going to build in those sites until the city does something about its stormwater systems, then you have to plan for buildings to be inundated. Thanks very much for your time today. I appreciate it. And um, we uh, look forward to seeing how those projects come about in the future. All right, thanks. Thank you everyone for listening to the Better Buildings podcast. I'm Peter Saunders, editor of Canadian Consulting Engineer. We'll see you next time.